0: And welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode from our centenary series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're looking at mergers and acquisitions, but in a biological rather than a financial sense. We find out what happens when two cells decide to move in together. We unpack the history of genetic engineering and bleat on about the story of Dolly the Sheep. Before we start, just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip or by email podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. We know you're listening all over the world, so come say hi. Also, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're listening. It really does make a difference and it helps more people to discover the show, so thank you. Best partnerships in life happen when both parties benefit from the arrangement, working together as a team to become more than the sum of their parts. And as it is in relationships, so it is with life itself. In fact, the diversity and success of life on this planet may be the result of cells buddying up and moving in together, combining their resources to create new organisms with advantageous new skills. It's an idea called endosymbiosis, And it starts, as so many of our stories do, with the microscopists of the 19th century. Let's take a closer look. In 1883, German botanist Andreas Schimper published a volume of his observations of plants, focusing in particular on the colourful structures inside their cells, such as the bright green bean-shaped chloroplasts that are responsible for photosynthesis. Presumably because they're easy to see, what with being bright green. In a footnote, he mentions a certain Professor Schmitz telling him that chloroplasts in algae appear to be produced by existing structures dividing in two and being separated into new cells, a bit like bacteria, rather than being built from scratch every time. As Schimper went on to observe, the same thing seems to happen in more complex plants too. He wrote, If this is definitely proven, then this would be a symbiosis, a Greek word meaning living together. By which he meant that chloroplasts were more like distinct little bacterial cells living within their larger plant cell hosts. Building on this idea, in 1905, Russian botanist Konstantin Merezhkovsky first published his theory explaining that chloroplasts may have arisen as a result of symbiosis, with smaller photosynthetic bacteria being engulfed by a larger cell at some point back in the mists of time. A decade or so later, biologists were training their sights on another structure inside complex cells, mitochondria. Somewhat similar in shape and structure to chloroplasts, mitochondria are the power stations of cells, effectively burning sugar and oxygen to generate the energy that fuels all the processes of life. Noting the similarities with chloroplasts and little bacteria, Frenchman Paul-Jules Portier and American Ivan Wallin put forward the idea that mitochondria too were the result of an ancient engulfment of one cell by another. But it's not enough just to look like bacteria and appear to reproduce like them. The next step came in 1959, when Ralph Stocking and Ernest Gifford discovered that chloroplasts contain their own DNA by that point known to be the stuff that genes are made of, and previously only thought to live in the cell nucleus. The discovery of DNA in chloroplasts and mitochondria was the first piece of hard evidence that these subcellular structures might have had a previous existence as free-living cells in their own right. But if they were now inseparably tangled up inside larger cells, how had they got there? And what did this cellular partnership mean for our understanding of the origins of complex life? Thanks to the burgeoning molecular biology revolution of the 1950s and 60s, most biologists became obsessed with the biochemical side of life, breaking open cells to study the DNA and protein inside them. But one curious scientist shunned this purely gene-based perspective and took a broader look at life. Her name was Lynn Sagan, at the time the wife of astronomer and science writer Carl Sagan, and later known as Lynn Margulis after her second marriage. She drew together evidence from a wide range of sources – microscopic, molecular, and from the fossil record – to suggest that there was a heck of a lot more symbiosis going on than anyone had previously imagined. Not only that, but symbiosis had played a radically important role in the evolutionary history of life on Earth. Engulfing photosynthesizing bacteria to create chloroplasts enabled early plants to produce the boost in oxygen that sparked major evolutionary transformations for the animals that consumed it thanks to their own endosymbionts, mitochondria. Margulis' theory did not go down well. Her paper outlining her ideas was rejected more than a dozen times before finally being published in 1967. Her view was that symbiosis was perhaps the most powerful driving force in evolution, with molecular mergers and acquisitions resulting in the emergence of new and more complex creatures. Unfortunately, very few others agreed. Margulis' ideas about evolution proceeding by cooperating and cellular buddying up, bringing about rapid biological innovation, ran counter to the prevailing view of so many evolutionary biologists in the 60s and 70s, and they fought back hard. The so-called neo-Darwinists like Richard Dawkins and John Maynard Smith held that evolution created new species through the slow, gradual tick of genetic change and competitive selection, survival of the fittest rather than such bold, collaborative leaps. But Margulis didn't accept that this slow, selfish creep was enough to bring about the big evolutionary changes that must have taken place as new species emerged. In her own words, life did not take over the globe by combat, but by networking. Margulis' combative personality and contrarian attitude didn't exactly make her popular with the scientific establishment. Perhaps combined with the fact that she was a woman in the predominantly male world of academic research. But as more and more hard evidence came to light through the 1980s and beyond, such as the discovery that the genes in mitochondria and chloroplasts are more closely related to the DNA in bacterial rather than complex cells, Margulis' outsider theory of endosymbiosis came to be accepted as the established narrative. There are still arguments around the edges, such as exactly when and how many of these fusions have happened over the history of life on Earth, whether whip-like structures called flagella are the remnants of ancient engulfed spiral-shaped bacteria, and whether the cell nucleus itself is an ancestral engulfed virus. But the basics are thought to hold up. By the time Margulis died of a stroke in 2011 at the age of 73, endosymbiosis was broadly accepted as the explanation for the origins of organelles like mitochondria and chloroplasts in eukaryotic cells. And many species are now known to be made up of cells locked together in symbiotic relationships, including algae, lichen, unicellular organisms and more. Margulis also made another important contribution to science, working with environmentalist James Lovelock to develop the so-called Gaia hypothesis, the idea that the Earth itself and all its inhabitants form a synergistic and self-regulating complex system. But although her once-controversial contributions to biology have become part of the scientific canon, in her later years, Margulis became notorious for making controversial statements without solid evidence, such as promoting 9-11 conspiracy theories. While that stuff is probably best forgotten, her vivacity and tenacity for a broader view of biology should always be remembered. She became widely regarded as a leading figure in biology, and received a National Science Award from US President Bill Clinton in 1999. Her obituary in the journal Nature describes her as an independent, gifted and spirited biologist, who learned as early as the fourth grade to tell bullshit from real, authentic experience. With courage, intellect, a twinkle in her eyes, and considerable fortitude, she changed our view of cellular evolution. Even Richard Dawkins eventually recognised her persistence in sticking to her scientific guns, saying, I greatly admire Lynn Margulis's sheer courage and stamina in sticking by the endosymbiosis theory and carrying it through from being an unorthodoxy to an orthodoxy. This is one of the great achievements of 20th century evolutionary biology, and I greatly admire her for it. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics and online at GeneticsUnzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. It all helps more people to discover us. Genetically Modified Organism or GMO is a loaded term. Thanks to all the misinformation swirling around on the internet and in the wider media, there's a lot of confusion about what GMOs actually are, why they're created, and whether they're safe or even a good idea at all. But while misleading headlines about frankenfoods may grab the attention, there's a much richer and more nuanced story about the history and uses of genetic engineering that deserves to be told. Don't you be afraid. For as long as humans have domesticated plants and animals, they've tried to shape them through selective breeding, either to perpetuate, improve or lose particular characteristics. Today's chunky dairy cows with their huge milk-packed udders are a world away from their daintier counterparts from the earlier half of the 20th century, for example. Then there's mutation breeding which involves deliberately exposing seeds to DNA-damaging chemicals or radiation in order to induce potentially beneficial new traits. Thousands of new plant varieties have been generated in this way since the 1930s, many of them foods that are commonly grown and eaten around the world today. But when we talk about genetic engineering or genetic modification, what we really mean is deliberately altering genes, whether that's fixing, changing or breaking them or introducing new DNA into an organism, a process known as transgenesis. And that really started in the 1970s. In 1971, Kathleen Danner and Daniel Nathans at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore published a paper detailing their research on bacterial proteins known as restriction enzymes, first discovered in the 1950s. These enzymes are like little scissors for DNA, and are produced by bacteria in order to protect themselves from viral infection by chopping up invading viral genes. Dana and Nathans showed that one of these enzymes, endonuclease R, cut up DNA in a highly reproducible way, always chopping a particular virus into exactly the same fragments, suggesting that it recognised and chopped a specific sequence of DNA. So if these enzymes could cut viral DNA at specific points, then why not DNA from anything else? Add in DNA ligases, enzymes that paste these cut fragments of DNA back together again, which had just been discovered a few years earlier, and you have the makings of a genetic engineering revolution. This meant that scientists now have the ability to chop up DNA extracted from any organism and pop it into a virus or a plasmid, That's a small circle of DNA that can be grown in bacteria. And if that DNA contains a gene encoding a protein, then those bacteria might start making that protein, if you're lucky. One of the first people to do this was Paul Berg, a biochemist at Stanford University in California. In 1972, he cut and spliced DNA from two different viruses together with a short sequence from bacteria, with the intention of putting this hybrid DNA back into bacteria. However, he initially stopped short of taking that final step, for fear of what might be produced and whether it could be safely contained in his lab. It wasn't just Berg who was concerned. Many people were worried about the potential of these new molecular tools to be used for harm rather than good, including many of the scientists working with them. In 1975, Berg and a number of leading lights of the field convened a meeting at the Asilomar Conference Center in California to discuss the power and potential of this so-called recombinant DNA technology. Together with lawyers and doctors, they drew up guidelines on what these new tools should and shouldn't be used for. They also outlined the safety measures required for working with genetically modified cells and organisms and made efforts to communicate the risks and benefits of this technology to the public. And from that point on, biotechnology boomed, not just in academic research labs, but on an industrial scale. Scientists used genetic engineering tools to isolate the genes encoding vital biological molecules and put them into bacteria, allowing large-scale safe production of life-saving medicines such as insulin, which was previously made from dead cows or pigs. This wasn't without controversy and activists in the 1970s pushed back hard against GMO human insulin, a move that seems short-sighted and almost cruel today, but was driven by understandable fears and uncertainty. Today, genetically modified bacteria, yeast and laboratory-grown cells are used on a grand scale for all kinds of purposes and products, a field now known as synthetic biology. There are GM bugs that make drugs, produce green fuels or environmentally friendly rubber and other materials, eat oil spills, sense diseases and much, much more. And the applications of genetic engineering technology don't stop there. Precision genetic engineering is an incredibly useful research tool. It's used in labs all over the world to create modified cells and organisms, from fruit flies and nematode worms to zebrafish, frogs, mice and more. Rather than just hoping for interesting mutations to turn up that mimic your disease of interest or hit your favourite gene, genetic engineering allows scientists to create precise changes that alter, enhance or completely eradicate the activity of certain genes. Something that has got a lot easier in recent years with the advent of gene editing technologies such as CRISPR. Genetic engineering tools are also used to insert markers that flag up when and where in the body genes are active, particularly during embryonic development. One of the most famous of these is GFP, a gene encoding a fluorescent protein originally isolated from jellyfish, which fluoresces green under ultraviolet light. These tools have brought huge advances in understanding how genes work, both in normal situations and in disease. For example, there are oncomice, which mimic the development of human cancers in the body much more accurately than cells growing in a Petri dish. And in recent years, they've brought significant steps towards gene and cell therapies, with potential for treating diseases that were previously thought to be incurable. It's hard to argue that using these genetic engineering tools to understand the biology of life and improve human health is a bad thing. Although we'll save the discussions about genetically engineered humans and adventurous biohackers for another day. But one area where genetic technology gets a lot more controversial is when these tools go out of the lab and into the foods that we eat. Back in episode 5, we dug into the story of the failed flavour saver GM tomato, the first time a genetically modified food was stocked on UK shelves. Since then, many genetically modified crops have been approved around the world, mostly soybeans and maize, with modifications including herbicide resistance, pest resistance, drought tolerance, and increased levels of vitamins. Livestock are more tricky, and to date, the US FDA has only approved one genetically modified animal for human consumption that's the growth enhanced Aquadvantage salmon. But there are others waiting in the GM barnyard, including the wonderfully named Enviropig TM, which produces less polluting waste than its unmodified counterparts. Though that's maybe not the green ham that Dr. Zeus was thinking of. However, there are serious questions to be asked about the benefits of GM foods, and we have to be able to trust the food on our plates. Using genetic technologies to modify agricultural plants and animals raises issues around food safety and potential risks to wildlife and unmodified species, as well as possible harms to the modified organisms themselves. It was recently discovered that a line of cows that had been genetically modified to remove their horns also carried an antibiotic resistance gene that had accidentally been left behind by the modification process. There are also bigger questions about the impact of large-scale monoculture farming, which is still an issue whether it's with GM organisms or those generated through regular breeding, as well as the potential reduction in the diversity of crops and equitable, affordable access to food. But at the same time, these risks need to be balanced against the benefits. Genetic technology can create more nutritious food, as well as animals and plants that are resistant to potentially devastating diseases. There's the potential for generating crops that will withstand droughts and other impacts of climate change, with higher yields and a reduced need for water and pesticides, which may be very slow or even impossible to achieve through conventional breeding. Personally speaking, blanket opposition to genetic engineering techniques in agriculture or farming is unhelpful, in my opinion. In the face of a growing global population and a change in climate, food security is a major issue particularly in many of the poorest parts of the world. And we owe it to our fellow and future humans to figure out how to use these tools responsibly, safely and fairly. Finally, there's one GMO foodstuff that most of us probably eat on a regular basis without even realising. That's chymosin, the enzyme used for making most of the cheese produced in many parts of the world. Chymosin, or FPC, is the major component of rennet, a substance traditionally made from the ground-up stomach linings of young cows, and it's used to thicken milk as part of the cheesemaking process. That isn't sustainable on the scale of today's industrial cheese production, so FPC is now grown and purified from a genetically modified mould known as Aspergillus, which carries the chymosin gene. The enzyme itself is not technically a GMO, and there are no traces of aspergillus left once it's been purified. But the cheese made using it is still technically the byproduct of a GMO. If you want to eat cheese that has no associations with GMOs, then your best bet is organic cheeses, which still contain rennet made from cows. And if you're a vegetarian who wants to avoid calf stomachs and doesn't like the idea of GMOs, then it's hard cheese, or rather no cheese for you. Cloning is a popular trope in science fiction, from Kazuo Ishiguro's moving human cloning novel Never Let Me Go, to Jurassic Park and that really bad Star Wars movie. We'll be taking a look at the science of de-extinction a la Jurassic Park in a future episode, and raising an army of aliens is out of scope for this podcast. But cloning humans took a step from the realms of sci-fi towards reality in 1996 with the birth of Dolly the Sheep. The first live-born adult mammal clone, created by taking the DNA from an adult cell and putting it into an egg. Uh. Dolly's birth was announced in February 1997, although she was actually born a few months earlier, in July 1996. I was at university when I first saw the now infamous issue of the scientific journal Nature, sporting a rather surprised-looking sheep on its cover. And it's fair to say that her birth rocked the world. The story of the technique that led to the creation of Dolly started more than 40 years earlier, back in the 1950s, when American biologists Robert Briggs and Thomas King started experimenting with frog cloning. They were swapping out the nucleus, that's the biological bag of DNA, from frog eggs and replacing it with a nucleus taken from a very early frog embryo. And yeah, there was a lot of frog spawn involved. It's important to point out that this wasn't research aimed at cloning animals in a kind of ha-ha-ha-ha, we're playing gods kind of way. Instead, they wanted to test the idea first put forward by 19th century developmental biologist August Weissmann, who suggested that cells in a developing embryo lost bits of their genetic information as they grew and specialised. <laughs> According to Weissman, the only complete, perfect set of DNA would be in a fertilised egg. Any more mature cells would have lost the DNA they didn't need, and only kept the instructions for the cell type that they had become. This theory was backed up by Wilhelm Roux, who used a hot needle to obliterate one of the cells in a two-cell frog embryo, just after that very first cell division. The result was a very sad-looking half-embryo, apparently proving Weissman right. But another German embryologist, Hans Driesch, wasn't convinced. He got busy shaking up sea urchin embryos in a test tube to the point where their cells fell apart from each other. Each one grew into a perfectly healthy new urchin, making these creatures the first true deliberately cloned animals in history, if you want to be really pedantic about it. These results showed that each embryonic cell still had all the correct instructions for life suggesting that Rue had maybe somehow damaged the remaining embryo cell with his hot needle experiments, preventing it from growing into a healthy frog. Support for Driesch came from yet another German embryologist, Hans Spemann. Honestly, you would think they were cloning them over there or something? Spemann used a loop of hair from his own baby's head to carefully separate the cells of a salamander embryo. Up until a certain time in development, which Speyman referred to as determination, any of the separated cells had the capacity to grow into new animals. But after that point, no dice. Spayman's salamander experiments were published in 1902, suggesting that it should be possible to clone animals from early embryo cells, but not from adult ones. That's the law of nature, and that's how it is. Case closed. He is the creator and sustainer of all the worlds. Whether those worlds are known, or unknown to mankind. Briggs and King's experiments in the 1950s took the Germans to the next level, putting DNA from fertilised early embryo cells into unfertilised eggs to see if it could direct normal development. This was actually an idea first put forward by Spemann in the 30s, but it took a while for embryologists to develop the tools and techniques that were needed for such a fiddly task. But by 1952, they had done it, successfully creating the first animal cloned by somatic cell nuclear transfer as their technique was known. Next came John Gurdon and his colleagues in Cambridge who wanted to use the same technique to test the limits of Speyman's point of no return and find out if it was possible to create cloned frogs using DNA taken from cells in the gut of older tadpoles which were fully committed to their fate. Amazingly, they managed to get some live embryos out of all their experiments, some of which grew into healthy adults, netting Gurdon a share of the 2012 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his work, together with the Japanese stem cell biologist Shinya Yamanaka. But, while this proved that at least fully committed tadpole cells retained all their genetic instructions, Gurdon never managed to make a living clone from an adult frog cell. Still, he'd proved that amphibians could be cloned, so Could the same technique be used to clone mammals? There was an exciting false alarm in 1979, when University of Geneva professor Carl Ilmenzay announced that he'd successfully managed to clone three mice from early embryonic cells. But when nobody else managed to replicate his results, and a closer look at his lab revealed some strange goings-on, the university's own inquiry judged that his results had been falsified. Even though Ilmansay himself still stands by his claim to have been the first person to clone a mammal. Although people did start having some success with cloning mammals after that, for example successfully creating a cow using a cell taken from a very early embryo, it was widely thought that adult mammalian cells were somehow too far gone and set in their ways, biologically speaking. It was impossible to turn the clock back. Until Dolly changed everything. Uh. Dolly's scientific father, Ian Wilmot, entered the cloning game in the early 1990s, together with his colleague Keith Campbell at the Roslyn Institute on the outskirts of Edinburgh. As a leading centre for agricultural science, the Roslyn researchers were busy using the latest genetic modification techniques on farmyard animals in order to boost yields and make them resistant to disease. Having seen that a cow could be cloned from early embryo cells, which can be grown in the lab and genetically manipulated, Wilmot wondered if this could be a way to make GM sheep. Although Dolly gets all the glory, his first cloning successes were Megan and Morag. These were lambs cloned using stem cells that had been taken from a nine-day-old sheep embryo and grown in the lab. The Roslin team's success was due to a specific biological trick that they were using. As cells grow and divide, they go through a number of stages, known as the cell cycle. Along the way, there are numerous processes and checks that are carried out to make sure that the cell is ready to progress to the next stage. Unlike previous cloning experiments, which had used donor cells from any stage of the cell cycle, Wilmot used cells that had been starved of specific nutrients, sending them into a kind of sleep. Freed from the treadmill of the cell cycle, These dozy cells were much better DNA donors, ready to be reawakened in the egg and start development from scratch. The birth of Megan and Morag and the growing proficiency of Wilmot's team at the Roslin in manipulating these microscopic embryos led him to wonder whether cloning animals from adult cells really was biologically impossible, or it just hadn't been done yet. So he took a leap from foetal cells to adult ones, but where to find them? to the Roslin Institute, a company called PPL Therapeutics were growing sheep breast cells in the lab as part of a project to try and genetically engineer sheep that would produce useful drugs in their milk. The Roslin team procured some of these cells, put them to sleep, and then began to pop the nucleus from each one into a waiting, empty sheep egg. If development started and the egg began to divide, they would transplant it into a ewe and see whether the pregnancy continued. After nearly 300 attempts, because cloning is hard, they got just one lamb, 6LL3. This was the code number for the experiment that created her, and it was one of the livestock technicians who suggested the catchier name, Dolly. And yes, she was named after Dolly Parton because of the connection to boobs. Then it all went a bit crazy. Dolly and her creators became scientific superstars overnight, although their work was reviled by some religious groups and animal rights activists. It's an inevitable fact that if you want to clone an animal, you're going to have to break some eggs, and some people feel that this is unacceptable. It's also a matter of some contention that neither Wilmot nor his closest colleague Keith Campbell won a Nobel Prize for their work. Sadly, Campbell died suddenly, just a week before John Gurdon's award was announced in 2012. It may seem like a bit of a silly question, but I wanted to know what Dolly was actually like as a sheep. It appears that she shared some of the same outgoing personality traits as her namesake, as I discovered when I interviewed Ian Wilmot a couple of years ago. The best way to describe this, I live down in the borders, in among sheep farmers, and if they have a a lamb which is not being mothered, either because its mother's died or she's got too many lambs, they take it into the house and it becomes accustomed to people. And that's that's exactly what happened to Dolly. There were so many people visiting her, wanting to to uh, see her, to get her to be in photographs and this sort of thing that she became accustomed to people. In actual fact, came forward to people, whereas no, as it were, ordinary uh, farm sheep would do that. It, it would automatically turn and run. Despite her celebrity status, Dolly's personal relationships managed to escape tabloid scrutiny. She had three sets of lambs by anonymous fathers, a singleton, Bonnie. Twins, Sally and Rosie. Ah! And finally triplets, Lucy, Darcy and Cotton. Ah! Unlike the real Dolly Parton, who's still going strong into her eighth decade, Dolly the sheep died at the age of six. That's young for a sheep, which normally live for ten years or more. While there was much discussion about whether this was due to the fact that she was a clone, there was a more depressing explanation. Dolly caught a common virus that causes lung cancer in sheep, and after a few months she was suffering from untreatable tumours that made it hard for her to breathe. With much sadness, the Roslyn team realised that the only humane thing to do was to euthanise her. Yet Dolly still lives on, not only in scientific legend, but also in corporeal form, stuffed and mounted in the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. And she also lives on in a much more real sense. Four further clones were made from the original mammary cell line that gave rise to Dolly a few years after her death. According to a paper published in 2016, Daisy, Debbie, Diana and Denise were healthy, happy nine-year-old sheep living out their days in a university paddock. To celebrate Dolly's 20th birthday, the Roslyn Institute decided to throw a party in her honour. Or rather, they had a scientific symposium, because scientists know how to have fun. I was lucky enough to be invited to host the public event that evening, leading the assembled crowd in a noisy chorus of happy birthday to Dolly, possibly the only time that hundreds of people have serenaded a dead sheep. Alas, I never did get to ask Ian Wilmot whether he had a favourite Dolly Parton song, but I suspect that it's probably, I will always love you. That's all for now. We'll be back next time taking a look at the genetics and health effects of the microbiome. That's the collection of bacteria that live in your gut. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics and please, 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 please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people to discover the show genetics unzip is presented by me kat Arney, and it's produced by first create the media for the genetics society one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research teaching and application of genetics you can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk our theme music was composed by dan pollard the logo was designed by james mail and production was by hannah varrell thanks for listening and until next time Goodbye.